It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. We're opening this week's episode of the show before the show right after we just recorded our interview for this week's episode of the show before the show. And it's so entertaining that I'm like having trouble focusing on the intro segment. But uh, hi. Hi. Welcome in. I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York City. Hey, dudes. Hello. Yeah, it's uh, how's that for a tease? Of, like, yeah, this is this is going to be great to hang out with you guys and talk like we always do. But like the, our interviews segment this week, there's four of us. Tyler, you were on the call as well, but there was I was just, just so laughing in the background happened. of the call. Yeah. Yeah. That I don't think you could get a word in edgewise for the best reasons. It, it's if you've seen the episode title, you already know what it is, but um, it's really exciting. We can't wait to bring it to. But we also have Ben back here this week after a big trip. Hey, do. Hey, Ben. Hi, I'm back. You're back. Um, that's what we're going to dive into. You got to hit the road to Fredericksburg. So we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show, the official podcast of minor league baseball, Tyler Mon, Sam Dexter, Benjamin Hill, Ben, uh, on the road again here in the 2021 season and got to hit one of the newest ballparks in the minor leagues, the new home of the Fredericksburg nationals, formerly known as the Potomac nationals who played in, let's say, uh, a lower tier facility at, uh, G Richard Fitzner stadium in Woodbridge, Virginia. And now they got all the bells and whistles and they got everything new in Fredericksburg and the place looks awesome um tell us about the trip to uh to see the new fred nats yeah you know fredericksburg nationals uh i sure they're working out a long-term name for that ballpark but right now it is literally fred nats ballpark um so easy to remember the team is often goes by fred nats you know the combination of course of fredericksburg and nationals i'm sure everyone could figure that out it's one of six brand new ballparks to open in minor league baseball in the year 2021 of course an elevated number we've as we talked about in the past uh given that there was no 2020 season and uh so as a new ballpark and a ballpark i could reasonably drive to from my home in brooklyn although you're really stretching the definition of reasonable when you're driving between new york city and fredericksburg virginia I don't want to start complaining. It's a privilege. I'm able to visit minor league ballparks for my job, but what an awful drive going from <laughs> like route 95, New Jersey turnpike route 95, maybe little cameos on 495 or 695 or other iterations of 95, all of them horrible with tons of stop start traffic, very, very poor rest stop options, just a miserable experience. But I loved every minute of it because I was on the road. I was getting to visit a minor league ballpark. Um, Fredericksburg, uh, as we talked about when the team announced their name, yes, it's the parent club name Nationals, but uh, they gave it some branding based around George Washington and his mother, uh, Mary. George Washington, his boyhood home is in the area. He lived in Fredericksburg for a time. Uh, his, his family, his mother continues to live there. So there's uh, some, you know, historic colonial revolutionary war era history around the, the area and the team branding itself. Uh, the ballpark is in an area where there's not much immediately around it right now. 
Uh, it's not one of those where you're in the heart of downtown or you have skyline views or you can walk right out and go to this restaurant or this bar or shop beforehand. Uh, there's like an apartment housing complex nearby, some woods in the back. Um, then the exterior of the structure is pretty low key, just the main entrance down the first base side. And then a, uh, you know, just kind of concrete beige-ish, beige-ish, you know, structure down, uh, down the baseline. So it's not one of those ballparks where you arrive and you're like, whoa, I'm walking into this cathedral. But like a lot of ballparks, when you walk in, you know, it's a new minor league baseball ballpark. Of course, 360 degree concourse, uh, a lot of room to move. I kind of like this in a minor league uh, context, you know, the outfield uh, billboards and ads kind of a bit of a riotous feel when you walk in with, um, you know, the scoreboard and the ads and uh, the color and, you know, you're fairly elevated above the playing field on the concourse when you walk around and check things out. Um, You know, no features that are like, whoa, like I've never seen this particular thing before. But, um, you know, a lot going on for it just as a, as a new facility um, with, you know, exciting energy, uh, good, good baseball fans in that region. And as Tyler mentioned, uh, the previous home of this team when they were the Potomac Nationals and Wood, Woodbridge was the Fitz. Uh, in 2019, that was one of the last places I visited. And that was, as many people have said, kind of a glorified, you know, amateur facility, the kind of place you feel would be more along the lines of, excuse me, seeing an American Legion game or something like that than a minor league facility. And I always try to remind myself of that is a new ballpark. The the point of comparison for the people who are using it the most is what minor league baseball had been, if anything, in that market. Um, It's fun for us to talk about. And, you know, for me as my job and for people who, you know, do travel to compare ballparks all over the country, that's fun. And that's a worthwhile discussion, but what really matters is, is the market itself. And this is just, a massive upgrade by any measure when you compare it to what this franchise had before with uh, the Potomac Nationals. Yeah, and, and what what stood out most would you say in terms of the difference between the fits? Just in terms of overall quality, that's that's obviously a big step up. But what, for those who are walking in and immediately, what do you notice differently? Uh, I guess other than just how new and modern everything is as well. I mean, what you notice is that there's a lot more to notice. You know, the Fitz was one of those older ballparks where the concourse is on the, you know, the outside of the facility, you know, back behind the playing field, kind of dark and cavernous and prone to leaking. And so if you're really seeing the field, you're just up in the seating bowl area or down the bleachers on the sides, but there's not really room to move. You don't really just get a sense of the grandeur of the ballpark, um, at the old facility, unless you were sitting in your seat and then it wasn't very grand, but here, you know, you walk in, you know, that entrance right there uh, down the first baseline. And uh, it's like, bam, you see everything. You look to your left, to your right, you know, across, you know, to the woods, you know, the trees, to the apartments in the back, you can see everything, you know, around you. You're not just kind of trapped in this little area um, and sitting on bleachers that are, you know, melting in the hundred degree sun as uh, you know, Tyler, I'm sure has a lot of stories about as a former Carolina league uh, broadcaster has a lot of stories about that facility. Um, Yeah. So it's just night and day, as I said. Yeah. And uh, obviously a a big asset for the Washington nationals too, to have a ballpark that's that close and is that nice. And uh, the alternate training site was there last year, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, So it's a a place that has already borne some player development fruit for the, uh, the Nats organization. And then you got uh, to know and and learn a lot about one of the characters in Fredericksburg, a member of that uh, Fred Nats family. And you got a story coming up on that this week as well. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, as you guys know, and listeners to the podcast know, 
In addition to just writing about the ballpark itself, always looking for the ballpark characters and working on a story right now to be up on the site tomorrow on Friday, August 6th, um, about an usher I met at the Fredericksburg Nationals game, uh, a man named Bruce Thompson. And if you see him, and especially maybe if you're a child who sees him, the obvious question is, are you Santa? Because here is this usher and uh, he's got a big, long white beard and white flowing hair. And the answer to an extent is yes, he is Santa. I don't want to get into the specifics of Santa and his viability as a real live person and living on the North Pole and, uh, you know, how you deliver gifts around the world just in the span of one day. But I think Santa's real. The spirit of Santa is real. And he is real uh, because of people like Bruce Thompson all over the country who dress up as Santa, who play Santa, who, who go to children's hospitals and uh, restaurants and malls and anywhere to meet kids, put a smile on their face and do it. And it's interesting when I talk to him, you know, about him and his story, you know, he was a train conductor, worked for Amtrak for 36 years. A large portion of that was on a route between Virginia and Florida, where he'd have time between stops during the holiday season to change into a Santa suit and then walk up and down the train car, giving up candy canes and being Santa. Uh, he later was diagnosed with cancer and, um, you know, being Santa was really important because, you know, he could actually in the same hospital in which he was receiving cancer treatments, be Santa for the kids in the hospital who are undergoing their own struggles. And right now in the year 2021, obviously that's uh, the present, um, he has been diagnosed again. And when I talked to him on, um, you know, last weekend, you know, he said, Hey, I had chemo today, but I'm still at the ballpark. And I, I love being at the ballpark and I love kids asking me whether or not I'm Santa Claus and uh, I love being Santa and I'm looking forward to this Christmas season. Uh, so it's just one of those people you meet at the ballpark, a man who looks like Santa, who's, uh, you know, fighting through his own struggles with a great attitude and, uh, who in a lot of ways, as I said, is Santa. It's very cool stuff. And that'll be up on the site by the time this podcast is released. And, uh, as I said, a very entertaining, very fun, um, interview today, Ben, tee it up for us. Yeah. We're going to hear from Dan Mason and Jason Smorl the respective general managers of the Rochester Red Wings and Syracuse Mets. Each of those teams has a regional food identity, the plates, i.e. garbage plates in Rochester, and the uh, salt potatoes in Syracuse. And uh, these two teams have taken upon themselves to make this rivalry, this uh, upstate New York regional food rivalry, into a very big deal. And uh, they're here to talk all about it and then some. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's time for a very special segment of the Show Before the Show podcast. I'm Ben Hill with Sam Dykster and Tyler Mon, and we are joined by two very special guests, two general managers of the erstwhile International League, now the AAA East. We have Dan Mason, general manager for the Rochester Red Wings, and Jason Smorl, general manager for the Syracuse Mets. Gentlemen, thank you for being here today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Good to virtually see you since we don't get a ballpark tour these days. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, of course, it'd be great to talk to you gentlemen, you know, for any occasion. Uh, we have a special occasion to talk about today. The Rochester Red Wings, of course, have a regional food identity, the plates modeled after the famous Rochester garbage plate. And the Syracuse Mets have a famous uh, have a regional food identity, the salt potatoes modeled after, of course, the salt potatoes. And today, the day we are talking, Thursday, August 5th, is the first game in this year's Duel of the Dishes in which, and for those who cannot, uh, who are listening to this podcast, you see that both general managers put on the respective hats. Yeah. Dan Mason representing the Rochester Plates and Jason representing the Syracuse Salt Potatoes. Their Duel of the Dishes, the battle for the Golden Fork, kicks off today. Uh, in Rochester, and it will continue in Syracuse later in the month. This is the third iteration of the Duel of the Dishes. Uh, there's a lot at stake here, a lot of trash talking. So where to begin? Let's uh, let's start simple here. Um, Rochester, you're hosting the game tonight. First, just a little background for those who don't know. This podcast has a wide audience, maybe not uh, totally well-versed in regional uh, New York State cuisine. And tell us about uh, the garbage plate and how Rochester became the plates. Well, it was uh, back, I believe, in 2017 um, when we were, you know, obviously uh, we had seen a few other minor league teams have a lot of success uh, taking on a food identity. And um, when we looked at, at doing that idea, there was really no other place we could go but then to go with the uh, the Rochester Plates. Uh, the, the Plates had been around. Coincidentally, we were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Garbage Plate, served at Nick Tahu's, a Rochester landmark restaurant. And um, so, you know, some people may wonder, what is a garbage plate? It is a, uh, it starts off with a an empty plate. Then you, half the plate, you put golden hash browns, deliciously done golden hash browns. Then the second half of the plate is creamy mac salad. Then you top it with either two hamburgers, two cheeseburgers, or two red hots, or two white hots from Zweigel's Hots, uh, the official hot dog of the Rochester Red Wings and plates. Then you cover it with a Rochester meat hot sauce, um, which is kind of like a um, hot grease sort of uh, substance. And then you top that with onions and ketchup and mustard. And sometimes, even here at Frontier Field, we add a little chili on top. Uh, so that is what a garbage plate is. It is um, delicious. That's all I can tell you, especially at somewhere around two, three o'clock in the morning. Um, so it, it is really uh, what we are known for here in Rochester. And I will note that it is a meal, not simply an appetizer or a side dish, which some other cities in upstate New York are uh, are known for. That they're the you know, for instance, the Syracuse side dishes is what we could call. <laughs> now, uh, again, for those uh, listening to the audio medium of the podcast, uh, throughout the time that Dan was talking about the Rochester garbage plate and the Rochester plate's identity, Jason with Syracuse was, uh, you know, making retching and choking motions, holding up a garbage can, looking just totally disgusted. Um, but Jason, now it's your turn. Tell us about Syracuse and the salt potatoes. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, the famous comedian, uh, had it 100% right when he said there's not a Department of Health in the city of Rochester because they allow the garbage plate to be served in restaurants all over the place. It's a horrible dish. 
that I have enjoyed many times at Nick Tahoe's <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning. Most recently, a few years back after dodgeball night uh, at uh, at Historic Frontier Field. Uh, and who won, so the, well, who won the dodgeball game, by the way? Uh, the, the Rochester Dodgeballians. The, uh, that, the thank you. We were what were we? We were the Globo Gym uh, Mets that day. I was I was put out very quickly in that uh, that fiasco. But anyway, I also missed my wife's wedding. She or wife, my wife's birthday. She was like, "Oh, where are we going for my birthday?" I'm like, nah, "I'm going to Rochester to play dodgeball with a wig on my head." She was very excited about that. Um, so uh, she is will be also excited because she hates garbage plates. She loves salt potatoes, which we'll be, we will be making as a family this weekend. We have actual history in Syracuse behind the salt potato, not a bunch of drunk Rochesterians throwing a bunch of food on a plate uh, at 2.30 in the morning. No offense to anybody in Rochester. But the history of the salt potato uh, is the history of America itself. And at one time, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, in Syracuse, New York, was the salt capital uh, of the United States of America, nay, the world. Uh, and Rochester was a, a suburb uh, of, of some tiny little podunk town over there in western New York uh, and, and created the necessity for the Erie Canal to get the salt from Syracuse to the important passages around the United States to build this country. Uh, the Irish immigrants would take the salt that came from the salt springs and they had two varieties of ways to evaporate the water from the salt. One was to lay it in very thin sheets that look almost like solar panels and they would let the sun evaporate them and then they'd cover them up when the rains came or they would put themselves in what's called salt blocks and they would take hollowed out logs that they'd made into pipes to bring the water in and then they would boil it and then it was 250 degrees in these salt blocks and the immigrants would just die because the, the salt was so they just died of dehydration. But the Irishmen took their potatoes and they boiled it in the boiling salt water and they got their salt potatoes and they are delicious. I must tell you, if cooked properly and no garbage plate can be made without a base of golden potatoes and there's nothing to make a home fry better than the next day's leftover salt potato. So you're welcome, Rochester, for everything for your existence that comes from the city of Syracuse. You're welcome. Thanks a million. <laughs> well, clearly, um, there's a lot of uh, contentious dialogue taking place right now. Garbage plates and salt potatoes. It could have been a, you know, we're all in this together. We, we get along. We complement each other. But clearly... <laughs> Clearly, you two teams have taken the opposite approach and going head to head, literally so, starting the night with the duel of the dishes. Um, I don't know who to ask first, but how did this become a rivalry with a name and a trophy, the Golden Fork? And what does this rivalry entail now that it's gone underway? What's a little of the history of that? Who should I even ask for? I'm going to see if I can find the Golden Fork. I'll let Dan say wonderful things about me while I'm off the podcast. <laughs> All right, as Jason looks for the trophy, which Syracuse already won, Dan can tell us about the history of the rival, the rivalry. Well, we, when we both had our uh, our food uh, identities again, we we uh, feel ours is well. We know ours is way better because again, it's a meal. It's not simply an an add on or uh, an appetizer. It's uh, you know it's something to enjoy for a long time. Um, 
There it is. The largest trophy in professional sport. The eight foot tall golden fork. Maybe the most amazing. coveted and largest trophies it's in professional sports. Dirt on it where Joel Skinner stabbed it into our field <laughs> when they won the golden fork. This right is literally now, holding up the golden fork right now. And it is massive. It is what, eight feet tall? Eight feet tall. And it's the, like I said, the largest uh, trophy in professional sports. Um, Joel Skinner, we did capture the fork a few years ago. And he and our pitching coach, Stu Clavern, proceeded as uh, Jason begrudgingly turned over the golden fork. Uh, Joel Skinner stabbed it right into the heart of the infield at historic MBT ballpark. <laughs> right there. Um, and then I think and walked off the field. ever didn't? since that day, that faithful day that Joel Skinner took the eight-foot fork and plunged it into the skin of historic MBD Bank Stadium that we would never falter again. And we've never lost a game since that day because the dual, the, the salt potatoes, look at him, look at him, look at him. Grr, he's angry. And he's ready. He's muscular and he's ready. And we're going to dominate. And we live. We don't care about championships. We don't care about player development. We care about one thing, the golden fork. That's it. I'm sure the Washington Nationals are just so pumped to hear you say that the first year of your affiliation. No, he's let me for the record. Smorl said that he's with Smorl. Sorry, sorry, I sorry, mean, sorry. The Mets. We're with the Mets Nationals. now in the yes, right. Um, and the one person that might care more than Stu Clyburn uh, about the the duel of the dishes and the battle of the Golden Fork might be current hitting coach of your Rochester Garbage Plates, Brian Dobek. Who was, who's been on both ends of this rivalry. Maybe the only guy to be on the both ends of this rivalry. Um, he's determined. When he pulled into the, uh, the ballpark this year, you know, for the first time, he said, Mace, I don't care about anything this year except bringing that fork back to Rochester <laughs> because he's known the pain of what it felt like to uh, both lose the Golden Fork and win the Golden Fork, and he wants it back in its rightful home right here at Frontier Field. Well, the whole point of any promo is to get local interest, right? Like that's that's the whole big thing. Oh, <laughs> Apparently, just, Jason's disagreeing. We just want to tell jokes back and forth between me and Dan. That's all there you go. That, that's also usually a secondary reason. But like now that you guys have done this for a few years, what has been the local reaction? Like, is there smack talk? Like we're getting between you two. Like, have you heard about it between towns, between players, between coaches? Any of that stuff? Well, let me just say this. Every time I mention the word Syracuse, well, actually, if I mention the words that the Wings are taking on the dreaded Syracuse Mets, the entire ballpark breaks out into a chorus of boos, specifically loud enough so that Smarl can hear them all the way in Syracuse. Um, and I know that he may or may not have said some disparaging remarks about myself, uh, both in ballpark and uh, – on radio stations and so forth. And, and television series. stations. <laughs> I say it all the time. His Aunt Donna loves it. Uh, but, yeah, the fans love it. Uh, we, our guys will be there uh, tonight uh, in their potatoes gear. Uh, he's, he's, I think he pays some guy. He sends some guy out here that has a, a plates flag. He tries to drape the plates <laughs> over our flag. Oh, he waves outside my office. I see some guy with his flag waving it. 
Uh, so there'll be some there'll be some some salt potatoes in Frontier Field. We travel well. Uh, there'll be some plates uh, here at the historic NVT Bank Stadium uh, when they return. Um, so hopefully we can get tonight's victory and then wrap it all up nice and neat when they return here because we have a tiebreaker uh, if it comes down to that. And since we are the holders and defending reigning champs of the Golden Fork, tiebreaker is here at historic MBT Bank Stadium. Well, I, I may be asking the impossible here. Um, but since you guys have just been ragging on each other for this long and you guys are, I won't say neighbors, but like an hour and a half apart, you guys are kind of brothers in this new triple A East setup. Say one nice thing, either about the other person, the other team, the other ballpark or the other city. Just one. Just, this has to be one. First of all, I think. Oh, you go yeah. ahead, Dan. Cause you're, no, you're such a nice person. See, he's so nice. He's going to let me go. Go ahead. The best part of me saying Dan Mason's a horrible person, and he is a horrible, horrible human being. He does horrible things. Um, I usually follow that up with, I love Dan Mason. Because <laughs> it's only <laughs> funny, because if you know Dan Mason, you know he's literally the nicest person in the world. And he's super awesome and super fantastic. And really, we just secretly want to be Rochester. Uh, so, uh, so we just steal all their ideas. And uh, if he says something's a good idea, we just go along with it. And then I just do my shtick and say he's a horrible person. So there is the utmost respect. This is all in good fun. I do think, because a lot of his fans come and they'll hear me say, I say it on our public address. I'm like, oh, Dan Mason is the worst person in the world. They're like, you do know Dan's a really nice person. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just say it. <laughs> so I believe there's a video somewhere of me, uh, and then Dan, I whispered it, and Danny um, superimposed the words where I said, I love Dan Mason, uh, on one of our <laughs> latest rants about how what a horrible person he is. So that's a long way of saying he's nice by me saying he's horrible. You just check. You basically, you basically ruined the shtick of this entire podcast. Way to go. Did I? See, I'm but not that right. See, thank you for thank you for those kind words. I was going to say when you guys said we were brothers, I was going to continue the shtick and say we're more like stepbrothers. But um, uh, no, but it's it's awesome to have uh, another partner in our league, especially so close uh, like Jason. That's it's so fun to do these promos with. And uh, you know, I will say if you haven't been to the Syracuse ballpark, it is amazing. The the Mets. And uh, we used to be jealous of them. Now they're jealous of us. Yeah. Now I I go there like every weekend. Um, But it's uh, yeah, they did an amazing job in their ballpark. And uh, we look to, you know, continue this rivalry and keep getting our fans to to their place. And uh, and we look forward to hosting many of their fans here at our place. Dan had a horrible idea, which we adopted because it's such a bad idea from a dumb person. And it was this year, there's a little bit more on the line other than the illustrious Golden Fork. Whoever loses, I don't even know how to explain it. You explain it. I can't even explain it. So whoever loses the Battle of the Golden Fork this year. Now, obviously, they will not get the fork in their ballpark. I'm pointing to you because you're a loser. Oh, you're pointing to a black part of the Zoom screen on my screen. <laughs> same, on, same on mine, actually. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. He has some, he has some problems with directions. Um, but but the, the losing team will have to provide uh, their fans 
So let's say that, let's just say, God forbid the wings or the plates lose tonight. We will have to give away hats featuring a salt potato logo on them to our fans next year. Um, we will also have a garbage can right near the main entrance. So fans will be able to deposit those hats right into the garbage as soon as they come in and get them. But um, next year there will be a giveaway at the losing team's ballpark of the winning team's logo on a cap. It's hard to explain, but rest assured, we will be giving out salt potato hats on his dime, the, the black box right there at Frontier Field, and their fans are going to have to put on the beautiful Deluski-esque salt potato. Well, the uh, 2021 Duel of the Dishes kicks off in Rochester uh, tonight, in which we were taping this segment, uh, August 5th, continues in Syracuse on August 28th and the 29th, if necessary, for the best of three set. Obviously, there's a lot on the line. Golden Forks, giveaway items featuring the opposing team, regional pride. Um, but this interview, for all the uh, trash talking, did have surprising moments of unity. And I'm wondering maybe if we can close on that. Can Rochester and Syracuse maybe briefly unite, come together, and just choose another team in the league that are just awful? <laughs> oh, I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Dan got the guts to I, say it, but if we're gonna, no. I'm, I'm not afraid to trash talk. The answer is Buffalo, right? It's our throughway arrivals. If we're going to add some fuel to the fire, we might as well throw Buffalo into the bus, right? Yeah. That, we also play for the, uh, uh, the, the illustrious second most another, important trophy. The second most important trophy um, in upstate New York is the throughway cup. Uh, Brian Dobbett is very also uh, enthralled with the Thruway Cup, which I believe we're winning, by the way. Whatever. Because Buffalo Uh, had to play in Trenton this year. True. But uh, next year when uh, Buffalo is playing in Buffalo uh, all season, then the the Thruway Cup will also become a major bone of contention between all three communities. I should start saying that Mike Butchkowski and Anthony Sprague are horrible people. (laughs) I would also like to point out, Ben Hill, garbage plates are not gluten-free. Salt potatoes are. <laughs> there you go. That is Korean favor with this podcast. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> the last well, ditch of there, no big the deal. Just no big deal. We're a little bit more healthy. Uh, we, we cater to more people, more fans than Rochester because they don't like their fans or people. Yeah. Go get yourself a salad and some salt potatoes in Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a lot to ground here, boys. Cover a lot of ground, a lot to unpack, as they say here on the internet. Uh, Dan, Jason, Rochester, Syracuse, uh, lots at stake. Duel the dishes starts tonight. Thanks so much uh, to the two of you, friends or enemies, and maybe even friends for coming on the podcast and uh, speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having us, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We will retain supremacy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It was a very entertaining trip uh, to upstate New York, one that I did not know I needed on this Thursday and that I'm thrilled that I had on this Thursday. Secretly, one of my favorite parts of that interview was Ben asking, like, which AAA East team do you want to throw under the bus <laughs> next? And I was like, oh, no, like there's gonna, <laughs> they're going to throw everybody under the bus. And then they just said, no, Buffalo. Gotta be like, Buffalo. Of course it's Buffalo. <laughs> of course it's Buffalo. All Sorry that we didn't have you on to defend your honor, Buffalo Bisons. Yeah. The uh, the the nomadic team of 2021. Although now, and, and we're kicking off three strikes on this week's episode, Toronto Blue Jays have returned to Toronto. Right. So presumably so, the Bisons could like have a normal end of the season. They, and I believe they will. Um, I, I think all those pawns that had been moved around in terms yeah. of the Trenton Thunder were supposed to be an MLB draft league team. Um, they kind of got pushed out of their own stadium to allow the AAA Buffalo Bisons to take over and play there in Trenton Thunder uniforms. Yeah. Odd as that looked seeing like Nate Pearson wearing a Thunder uniform or yeah. Alec Manoa during his brief time of Buffalo. Um, so yeah, I believe. Buffalo is going to go from Trenton back to Buffalo. Trenton Thunder are going to allow it to be played in, in their own ballpark again. And uh, things will be kind of back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, we're hoping we continue down that road. Uh, it's also been a, a long time since we have uh, had to say this on the podcast. But if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, uh, it's, it's really time. And, uh, we are all so mindful of the, the world that we currently inhabit, but it's, it's getting a little dicey again, uh, with the, the Delta variant and now a Delta plus variant, um, showing up in, in Asia and such. And, um, you know, just, uh, let's, let's all get back to normal. It would be very nice to not be turning pages back into the worst year of our lives, which it kind of feels like it's been over the last several weeks. And, uh, uh, with that, let's dive into three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. As we kick things off, looking back at the Major League Trade Deadline, we are uh, a week past the MLB Trade Deadline, essentially. And by the time you hear this, we will be a full week past. And uh, a lot of moving pieces. It was one of the busiest deadlines, uh, in certainly in recent memory and maybe in all memory of, uh, of MLB Trade Deadlines. And um, that comes, of course, due in part to the fact that there is no more waiver trade deadline which used to be the end of august this year that is gone um so the non-waiver trade deadline here in 2021 was the deadline um unless you're the dodgers who went out and signed cole hamels not a trade but like oh they're still making moves um sam your your thoughts your reactions for strike one uh on this week's episode of the show before the show on how things stand after the deadline so many changes so many top prospects moving places you know we were just um chatting with rochester they've got some fresh faces there uh with guys who came over in the the max scherzer trade to the dodgers and uh Robert Ruiz is uh, is one of those new members of the Nationals organization. But your overall thoughts on the deadline and where things stand now? Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to you last Thursday evening, Tyler, and we kept pushing it back and pushing it back because of that Max Scherzer, Trey Turner deal from the Nationals to the Dodgers. And we wanted that to be official uh, before we really went on air and started to talk about it. And it wasn't official until really just before the deadline on Friday, but we we knew the actors in play here and it ended up being exactly as we thought with Josiah Gray, Cabert Ruiz, Donovan Casey and Gerardo Carrillo 
uh, going from LA to Washington in that deal. But Washington system, we talked about this a little bit last Thursday. It, it felt like it was going to be fully remade uh, based on the moves that they were making all week. And, and that's basically where it stands. I mean, as somebody who is involved in ranking nationals prospects right now for MLB pipeline, we put in 10 new prospects into that NAT system. Um, we're going to be doing re-ranks in a couple of weeks here. So that'll change even more so here in the next few weeks, adding draft picks and such. But the NAT system looks significantly better than it did. Now, I totally realize that that comes because they gave away two players who helped them win a World Series. And, and more than that, you know, trading Jan Gomez and uh, Josh Harrison to Oakland, uh, among other trades, uh, Brad Hand going from Washington to Toronto. Um, a few other deals that, that moved on. Daniel Hudson as well going to the Padres. So in order to, for this NAT system, which entered the year, let's be frank, as the worst system in baseball, in order for them to improve, they had to sell some major pieces, but they certainly accomplished that. Uh, it's easily the, the system that was made over the most. The one that was most interesting to me from a prospect standpoint, I think, was the Jose Barrios trade from – the Minnesota Twins to the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, Barrios has a year and a half left on his deal. So the Blue Jays are buying him not just for this season, but potentially for next season. They're adding him to that mix alongside Vlad Jr., alongside Bo Bichette, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., uh, Kevin Biggio, on and on and on, Marcus Semyon for this year, George Springer, who they signed. The Blue Jays are in this for the long haul. They're not just trying to win this year. So you can see why they made the move, but they gave up two top 100 prospects to do it in Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson. Now, Austin Martin going into last year was a top potential draft pick. Indeed, the Jays took him uh, high in the draft at coming out of Vanderbilt. Nobody questioned his hit tool. The guy has not hit for much power this year, and I think that's kind of led the industry to question who is he going to be, especially defensively as well. He's, he's played shortstop. He's played center field. Is he going to stick at either position? Who's to say? Um, now that's something the Minnesota Twins are going to have to figure out, and he's going to be in the same system as Royce Lewis, who we were having similar debates before he had an injured knee. Um, so that's fascinating to figure out. And Woods Richardson, uh, I believe, was also – he's also at the Olympics now, correct, Tyler? He is, yeah. He and Joe Ryan both traded uh, to the Twins – while on the U.S. roster at the Olympics. Like you leave Tokyo in one system, or you leave for Tokyo in one system and you return home in another. Yeah, so the, again, Woods Richardson, the shine has been taken off him a little bit this year. Um, he usually throws for better control than he has this year at A. Still think he can be a starting pitcher. He's, he's probably closer to a four or a five now than he was a three at the beginning of the year, but still could be a long-term starting pitching solution there for the Twins. So, yeah, the Twins... None of, no part of this year has gone the way they would have hoped they would have planned. They were hoping to be right there with the White Sox at the top of the AL Central. That didn't work out. So now they're punting and really re rebuilding. But getting two top 100 prospects for Berrios, when essentially the Dodgers did the same thing for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, is certainly notable to me. Um, so that twin system is remade. The Cubs, they had a fire sale. I think there, there was a bigger emphasis on the major league side of those trades. I am a fan of Pete Crow Armstrong. I know some people are trying to figure out whether he's going to hit enough. I think he's one of the best defensive outfielders in all the minors. I think he could potentially be at least an average hitter, if if not a slightly above average one. Um, he's missed most of the year due to injury. But still, like the Cubs to get Pete Crow Armstrong, who was a borderline top 100 prospect for Javi Baez straight up in a rental, seems like a good bit of, 
uh, bit of business for the Cubs. Uh, so that's fascinating to watch. And that, those were the three, I think, improved the most. The Rangers improved a little. The Pirates improved a little. Uh, but it was a flurry of moves last Friday. Anything else stand out to you, Tyler? You know, the Chicago Cubs trading away anybody and everybody and adding uh, a whole bunch of pieces is – that's a team that's five years removed from a World Series championship. The Washington Nationals are two years removed from a World Series championship. And seeing these abrupt um, about faces after teams are successful in winning titles, there seem to be very few franchises that uh, are not going that route. Obviously, the Dodgers are one. Um, you know, the the big money teams, the, the Yankees, I don't think we'll ever see go through a rebuild um, along those lines. But it is very interesting to see the Cubs a team that won a World Series five years ago. I went to a, a Cubs-Rockies game in Denver last night. With the exception of Chris Bryant and Wilson Contreras, every single human being who I saw wearing a Cubs jersey last night was wearing a jersey of a player who is no longer on that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is is kind of crazy. But that team reshaped. I think they got five new top 30 prospects, five or, new, five or six new top 30 prospects. Uh, and that one really stands out because of what they just were, being such a juggernaut in such short uh, memory from uh, just a few years ago and, you know, being a team that was in the mix uh, up until the deadline and in ownership had said, like, if we're close to a playoff berth, we're going to be buyers at the deadline and then completely blew up that notion uh, by trading away anybody and everybody. So um, a very interesting time for, uh, for franchises like that, for the nationals as well. Um, And kind of a, a strange one, I think for teams that were, that successful that recently um, who are just deciding now, well, we'll just, we'll blow it up and go through the rebuild route. Yeah. Especially with what you're talking about with the Cubs where the Cubs essentially built what every rebuilding farm system hopes to have. I mean, Chris Bryant came through the draft. Anthony Rizzo was technically a prospect when they acquired him from the Padres. Uh, Javi Baez was, was home built. Wilson Contreras is still on the team, but he came up through the farm system. Uh, Craig Campbell was somebody they signed, obviously. It was a little bit of a reclamation project, but still. like they, These were all moves that they had made to be contenders for a long time. And they needed to add to those pieces. They didn't need to just blow it up, I feel like. Um, it is disappointing. Would have loved to have heard what the like contract negotiations were between all of those sides in terms of extending a deal. Because, again, these guys have been in that system for a long time. I think they were really special to people on the north side of Chicago and just greater Chicago in general. Um, and for them to not stick around and be traded in this way is, is kind of a disappointing end to a, a team that had the core to potentially win multiple World Series titles. They got the one, which is great. Uh, and Lord knows Chicago really wanted that one, but feels like they could have extended that for a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, And that brings us to strike two, which is kind of tied into strike one, the major league baseball first year player draft held last month uh, during all-star week for the first time and held on location here in Denver. Uh, Most everybody signed, not everybody did sign. And of course the name that stands out is Kumar Rocker who went to the New York Mets at 10th overall Uh, the Mets and Kumar Rockers camp unable to come to an agreement on a deal. It sounded in the day after the draft as though the Mets were set to give Kumar Rocker $6 million, substantially over the slot value uh, for the number 10 spot in the, the first round of the draft. Um, there were red flags, evidently, that came up during uh, the health evaluation of Kumar Rocker, and uh, that led to a, a caving in of negotiations between Rocker's camp, his agent Scott Boris, and the Mets. So 
Kumar Rocker now is kind of out there uh, in the wilderness, and there are limited options for him as to what he can do next. He could essentially, um, you know, do the thing that I think most people several years ago may have expected, which was return uh, to Vanderbilt. That's probably not going to be the route that he goes, and I believe his camp has already said that's not going to be the route that he goes. Uh, He could just kind of work out on his own uh, and be a guy who goes into next year's draft um, off of uh, a personal plan for the the next 11, 12 months, whatever it is, or – he does have the option of signing with an independent league, a partner league, um, or, or something like that. He could also theoretically sign internationally. We've heard some discussion about that. Carter Stewart, of course, was the eighth overall pick uh, for Atlanta a few years ago and decided to go the route of signing in Japan. Um, there is a lot more that goes into that. Uh, Kumar Rocker would essentially not be a free agent eligible to come to the United States for six years and by that time, it's a different story. Carter Stewart went over after high school. Kumar Rocker would be 28 years old um, coming back over as a free agent. So I'm not sure what we're going to see from Kumar Rocker. He's not the only topic of this, uh, this second strike here on this week's episode. Um, among the signed guys, who are you keeping an eye on to watch uh, in the minors the rest of the way, Sam? Yeah, I mean, just to address Kumar Rocker real, real quick, I think it is going to be fascinating to see what he does. Um, Selfishly, I would love to see him sign with an indie ball team just to see him back out there um, and, and really test that arm and show that he is healthy and that he, uh, you know, probably should have signed with the Mets. The Mets should have stuck to that initial promise of $6 million. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. It's going to be a fascinating case to see how that kind of comes through. Uh, the Mets are going to get the 11th overall pick in next year's draft as compensation for losing Rocker. Um, so they're not coming up completely empty handed, but you have to think having somebody who was mentioned at the beginning of the year as a potential one, one candidate uh, dropping to 10 and they had an opportunity to take him and they did take him and things fell apart at the one yard line is, is disappointing for all parties. Um, so we'll see how that's going to work out in the end. And uh, I think back to when the Astros could have signed Brady Aiken in a similar issue. And he was the, he was the first overall pick. Uh, things didn't work out there for him or the Astros. They ended up taking the number two pick the following year, which turns into Alex Bregman. Seemed to go okay. Um, number two versus number 11 is a different story. But again, keep an eye on what the, the Mets do next year to see if this actually worked out in their favor. Uh, in terms of the rest of the draft, looking at where guys have played, Henry Davis, number one overall pick, homered in his pro debut. Uh, I think Adley Rushman actually did something similar when he was taken a couple of years back, he homered in what was then known as the GCL Henry Davis homered in what's now known as the FCL. Uh, should he be there? Probably not. He's, he's somebody who's a college performer. He was a really good hitter at Louisville. That's why he was taken number one overall. He probably should be with a full season affiliate right now, but keep an eye on that. See where he ends up uh, the rest of the way. I would hope he gets sent to an affiliate and can really kind of challenge himself and know the rigors of minor league baseball, know what it's like to be on the bus and, playing six days a week now instead of playing at complexes. But um, without short season, I think that's going to – that alters the equation uh, for some of these discussions. But Marcel Mayer, Red Sox first overall pick – or first pick this year at number four overall. Uh, He just made his FCL debut today. Um, A couple of these guys are are starting to sprinkle in. I know Jordan Lawler, uh, first pick of the D-backs at number six is getting ready to make his ACL debut. He was actually working out, I think, in Amarillo. He is a Texas guy. Amarillo is now an Arizona affiliate, so that made sense. Um, but it was really funny to see him wearing the double-A gear 
the fact that he, you know, just turned 19 in, in July, um, already wearing double A stuff. It, it was a little jarring, but it, don't worry. He's going to be sent to the complex to, to start there. I'm not expecting much out of uh, pitching prospects this year. I think the 2020 layoff means a lot of these guys didn't get innings last year. They tried to add innings this year. There's no need to have them pitch additionally uh, in the, the minor league side this summer. Um, maybe you might see a, a start here and there just to keep guys fresh, but I would be really surprised if you see any of these top pitchers, your Jack Lighters, your Jackson Jobs, your Frank Mazzucato, Sam Bachman's um, really adding innings here in the minor leagues. It's, it's more going to be on the hitting side. And again, without short season, I think we're going to see a lot of these guys at the complexes and it's going to take some stellar college talents like your Henry Davis's uh, to kind of crack through to the full season ranks. That's, the equation is certainly different this year. So keep an eye on the complex leagues as best you can. It's probably your best opportunity to see these 2021 picks. And strike three this week, we got a couple of young guys making their moves up in the minor leagues and uh, two dudes who are headed to high a West. They've already arrived there. Marco Luciano in the San Francisco giants organization, the 19 year old shortstop and a fellow 19 year old shortstop or Elvis Martinez, who is now with the Vancouver Canadians uh, who are playing their 2021 season, sharing a home with the Hillsborough hops in, uh, in Oregon. Um, but those two guys, both moving up, obviously on similar tracks, similar stages of their careers, both 2001 birthdays. Uh, Marco Luciano born in September of 2001. Ralvis Martinez born in November of 2001, in case you all want to feel absurdly old. Uh, Sam, those guys have been really impressive so far this season. Now they get a chance to, to test themselves in really one of the most reconstituted leagues um, in the in the minors in 2021, teams that were formerly uh, members of the short season Northwest League. Um, and now that's really become kind of a, a showcase circuit, that high A West. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm really excited to see both of those guys there. And I think normally if we were just doing this uh, block, it would probably only be Marco Luciano that we're talking about. Marco Luciano, a top prospect in the Giants system. Right. Uh, we expected big things out of him coming into the year. So him moving up to high A like he's doing right now seems very much in line with what we thought. He's slugging over 500. He's got 18 homers in 70 games. Uh, one thing we heard about last year's alt site was that he was making lots of loud contact there when he was only 18. Um, now he's 19. He's turning 20 on September 10th. So he's, he's doing everything we basically thought he would be doing. He's the number 11 overall prospect right now. When we do the re-rank, he'll be around that area, if not maybe even slightly higher. He's certainly not going to drop based off what he did. But Elvis Martinez was somebody coming into the year that I had circled for the Blue Jays of, I think this guy is basically a borderline top 100 prospect already. Um, just need to see him hit a little bit longer, need to see him make that move uh, to full season ball. And honestly, it took a while for that to happen. Uh, you know, I, I was an advocate of his going back in May and June, but in May, he just had an OPS of 772. In June, it was 802. So you could see it's slightly increasing there, but he was hitting around the mid 200s. Not a lot of home runs. He only had six between May and June. Absolutely exploded in July. He had 13 homers in 26 games uh, down at low A Dunedin in the month of June. He slugged 798 and had an OPS of 1.218. Um, so this is somebody who, who again, like Tyler mentioned, a, a 2001 birth date. He's going to be 19 for this entire year. He doesn't turn 20 into November. So he's somebody who needed to grow into the full season game, really find himself, find that power because it is in there for sure. Uh, he does have at least above average power potential, 
And the fact that it came through in the way it did uh, in July was really something special and really forced the Blue Jays hand to push him to high A Vancouver and see what, how that bat's going to play. Um, I think it's an above average hit tool. I think it's a plus power tool. Uh, some questions about whether he's going to be a shortstop moving forward or if he's going to have to move over to third base, but he has the arm for it. Uh, I think we're going to be talking about Aurelvis Martinez a lot more as he climbs through that Jay system. And hey, they just got rid of Austin Martin, who was a shortstop technically, shortstop slash center fielder. One reason they probably felt comfortable in doing that is because they have Aurelvis Martinez, who's also a shortstop. Jordan Groshans, also a shortstop. They are loaded at the six right now. Uh, and trying to find positions for all these guys was going to be difficult. So use a chip, Austin Martin, bring back Jose Barrios, and get excited for Elvis Martinez because he's easily one of the best shortstop talents in the game right now. I like how you did that there where you said they're loaded at the six, which baseball scoring-wise is the shortstop position, and also Drake-wise is the city of Toronto. I would love to hear like folks in player development there just like for our brand. We need to be uh, loaded at shortstop. Just, you know. And I think Alec Manoa isn't his number six. Or the six. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, see? Like, they, it's just drilled yeah. into these guys' minds. They have to be good at shortstop or where the number six. Thank you, Drake. Uh, and that's three strengths for this week's episode of The Show Before the Show. We're back to wrap it up next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One of them is worthy of illusion, the others are mere illusions. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Minot Magicians. B. The Wachusett Warlocks. C. The Spokane Spellbinders. Whether you believe it or not, the Minot Magicians manifested right in front of fans' eyes in the North Dakota League. The seat of Ward County, Minot is nicknamed the Magic City on account of its having appeared out of nowhere in 1886, attracting 5,000 residents to the Drift Prairie locale within a few months of the laying of a railroad track. The magicians themselves were no less astounding in Houdinying something where there'd been nothing. In 1923, the magicians debuted with the North Dakota League itself, and they lived up to their name on opening day by conjuring up seven runs over the last two innings to disillusion 800 Bismarck Capitals fans. 
That trick was the first of many, as the team managed by Herb Hester pulled from its top hat win after win, getting hocus-pocus-like pitching from former White Sox righty Elmer Leifer and wizardly defense from former Portland Beavers infielder Carl Spranger. (laughs) Nobody could see through the magicians, and they levitated to the top of the league, taking it by 15 games and leaving the likes of the Jamestown Jim Cotas and the Valley City Highliners stupefied. In one of minor league history's most astonishing feats of now you see him, now you don't, the Magicians, and indeed the whole of the North Dakota League, closed the final curtain after that lone season, making 23 a truly magic year in Minot. Although the Magicians vanished, the town's high school nine still plays with that moniker. And that's the last card in the deck for the Minot Magicians. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these adorable little clubs was born onto a bygone minor circuit? A. The Eau Claire Fawns. B. The Yakutat Pups. C. The Elgin Kittens. Want to know the answer? Cuddle up with an encyclopedia. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is at a speakeasy with Jack Dempsey, and he's about to get punch drunk. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And at last, after a visit from our good friend Joshua Jackson, we say goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent across minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching this weekend on MILB TV? I mean, after our guest segment, after what we talked about in three strikes, it's got to be Syracuse at Rochester. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, they're not going to have the battle for the Golden Fork at the rest of the, the series by you guys, by the time you guys hear this. But you can go back into the MILB TV archives and watch you that can. game if you want. That's, that that is, is an option that is available to you. Um, but also just tune in for those games because it sounds like they're a lot of fun to watch just as a rivalry game. And also Cabert Ruiz, who we talked about in three strikes, still technically with Rochester. I feel like he's got to be making the moves to Washington at some point. It's not really not much he has left to do at AAA. He's hitting for average and for power, first at Oklahoma City, now with Rochester. But, hey, if you're a Nats fan trying to see what the, the future is going to look like, tune in and watch that one. Absolutely. Um, and I selfishly also have a plug. I decided this week hey, I'm going to go to Albuquerque this weekend. So uh, Friday, Saturday, I'm going to be at the Topes and the Oklahoma City Dodgers uh, at Isotopes Park, which now has some fancy corporate name, and I can't remember what it is. Um, but I'll be there. And if you're tuned in on Friday, I believe Friday night, Josh Sushan, our good buddy and the radio voice, of the Albuquerque Isotopes, he's going to have me on for like the middle third of the game to ruin his broadcast. So <laughs> uh, get excited for that. You can. You can what happens in. when there's two of you who do play by play in the same booth? Like, oh, I'll just make like uniform uh, observations. You know, it'll okay, just be right. dumb things. I, I, I got to play that role. I'm not going to steal. I can't steal any play by play thunder from an actual good play by play guy. Like Josh well, I was going to say, like, do you have to physically restrain yourself? He's the for great saying, one. And that's a two, two, <laughs> like, no, Tyler, that's my job. 
But it's going to be fun. I'm very excited for that. And hopefully I'll be able to then strong arm Alex Friedman into having me on the Oklahoma City broadcast the next night. And then I can just make my way through AAA West. And these are all people we've had on the show before. Yeah, friends of the show. Very and legitimate. Great dudes and great dudes. I'm really just going down there to have breakfast burritos in a place that is not my own place with breakfast burritos. So that's pretty much my whole goal. It's going to be green fantastic. chili, everything. Exactly. Exactly. It's going to be great. So uh, that's it. You can tune in all of those at MILB.TV and uh, another fun week's edition of the show before the show podcast. For Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Vaughn, and we'll talk to you next week.